Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission and host for our regular monthly series on smart growth and livable communities, where we discuss ways we can create equitable communities that provide better housing, transportation, and economic opportunities for all residents. Today, as our guest, we are honored to have Senator Bob Wykowski. Senator Wykowski was elected in 2014 to represent the 10th Senate District in California, stretching from Southern Alameda County into Santa Clara County. Senator Wykowski is a leader in advocating for climate adaptation programs and is well positioned to do so as chair of the Environmental Quality Committee and Budget Subcommittee 2 on Resources, Environmental Protection, Energy, and Transportation. He previously served as Vice Mayor of the City of Fremont, which gives him a great sense of local challenges and opportunities as well as state opportunities. Senator Wykowski, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Kate. Great. Well, let's just jump right in. So the first question I have for you is, Around the the recent firestorms and mudslides in California, it certainly seem to have these events seem to have raised awareness of the risk of climate enabled disasters and the need to better prepare communities to respond and adapt to these changes. You represent large portions of the Bay Area, so I'm curious how much you're hearing from your constituents about concern around climate changes such as sea level rise. Well, I think you know my. Constituents are very concerned about sea level rise, but I think they're worried and concerned about all these extreme weather events. I mean, the the media has been taking us through the fire season and the mudslides and the and the drought, but we have a whole suite of of uh, bad results that can occur from climate extreme climate, whether it's vector infestations, extreme heat. So we want to, you know, this. The idea of having an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure comes back to my my mind. Um, California has is going to be forced to take some aggressive uh, steps in this area. And while we have the federal government is sort of just intentionally dismissing any harms that are going to occur from from changes that are caused by climate, I hope that you know we can our our thinkers can get ahead of you know, the planning process, because, you know, last year in my district in San Jose, we experienced, you know, the heavy rains, we had the flooding and they, you know, they had to get evacuations and all that. So people understand their lives are disrupted and what may be done. We also know that in the Bay Area with measure AA, people passed, decide to tax themselves, or at least people who own parcels at 12, at 12 bucks. And that's going to create a half a billion dollars for the next 20 years for the Bay enhancements. And the enthusiasm of having 69% of the people uh, approve that is reflective of the folks that, that call the Bay area, their home. I've got a 
bill that I'm sponsoring or I'm working with the Santa Clara Valley Water District that is their shoreline project. And they want to be eligible for some state flood uh, subvention reimbursements. And with if they can, they can assist with the Measure AA, this new levy, a four-mile levy that's going to go in the South Bay, which is actually going to expedite the tidal march um, habitat restoration. So, you know, in the budget last year, we got a little bit of money in BCDC that we helped them with the adapting to rising tides program. But we have to do all of the above, uh, Kate. You know, we have to, again, all we need is a mosquito infestation coming up this summer in places where nobody ever had mosquitoes and, you know, people getting sick and dying. And I don't want to I don't I want to see a holistic approach rather than rushing from fires to sea level rising to vectors to extreme heat to the next crazy weather event that they have. So there's more work that needs to be done. Absolutely. And of course, it it takes time to pass legislation and to pass a budget that includes some of these measures we saw out of the last legislative session, uh, increase in funding from cap and trade to fighting wildfires and prevention activities. And that's fantastic. But like like you said, you know, we need to be thinking about this holistically and not jumping from one disaster to another because there is lag time. So I think we need to be thinking a, a lot more proactively about how we can get in front of some of these challenges. Specific to some of the local communities, We've seen study after study show that it's not just about the science. And in fact, the uncertainty around science, that isn't as large as an issue as it has been in the past, although it continues to be an issue. But the major challenges now are really around lack of funding to prepare and implement plans. So people are are realizing this is important, but may not have the funding to do it. They have insufficient staff resources to analyze the great information that we are producing uh, at the state and through our universities. They've got competing pressing issues that take up a lot of their time, and there's a challenge of lack of coordination across government. So now that we've gotten people to to understand that this is a big risk, uh, unfortunately, through the education and outreach we've done, but also through these disasters we've had to face as a state. So now that folks are paying attention, how do we address some of these barriers? I guess the answer has to come from all levels of government. I mean, you know, and your listeners probably know of the high priority I have for climate adaptation as the chair of the Environmental Quality Committee. And so I get we need to do a lot in this changing circumstance, but you hit the nail on the head. You know, it comes down to the coordinating and funding and this access to scientific information. And and how do you make that a priority? I mean, like you said, you can go on the internet and you can get all kinds of ideas. So, I mean, the, the state has, you know, we're requiring the cities to include include climate adaptation and resiliency strategies in their general plans. And and I think, as you indicated, many people are doing that. And that's and that's one way to do it. And we also know that this is the climate adaptation and resiliency needs to be embedded in the plans. You know, this is not the cherry on top of the sundae. This is this is in all the all the programs that we have. You know, we got the Safeguard in California, the CalAdapt, and the, this technical advisory committee that's working on adaptation, in, this information clearinghouse that it, the 
OPR, the Office of Planning and Research, is doing. So we have, hopefully, we've become more comprehensive over time to allow our agencies that run these various climate scenarios with their mapping technologies and the latest information that come in. But, you know, I'm going to continue, and I, I have been, to try to come up with what we have in the federal government with Obama, that Advanced Research Project Agency for Energy. You know, I mean, a lot of people remember Solyndra got some money and it, it didn't work out, but there were all kinds of of programs that came in that were funded with basic research dollars and applied research. And I think in the in climate adaptation and resiliency, you need that 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 applied where you said people understand what the what needs to be done. They just lack lack the funds. But I'd like to see cap and trade funds used for, I guess what do they call it, ARPA A for energy. Maybe it's ARPA A for uh, adaptation. That would be great. I would certainly uh, love some more focus on specifically the applied part of the research, because if if folks don't have the bandwidth to to analyze that research and to implement, then, you know, it's just another report that sits on the shelf. But certainly to the extent that we're using the research to actually do pilots on the ground, I I think that is a, a fantastic approach and would love to see that. You know, one thing that occurs to me is this conversation around when does this become a priority with with all the other competing interests and that could be at any level of government. And I think what we're hearing is it it certainly is a priority post-disaster. And so, you know, one of the opportunities we certainly want to do as much in advance to adapt and and to avoid some of these challenges. But is there an opportunity to put resources in place so that communities, when there is a disaster, can rebuild better the second time around? An example of that is in Sonoma County and in the city of Santa Rosa, they have set up parallel um, permitting offices that can get permitting get permits through faster to rebuild houses. They're looking at rebuilding more energy efficient and looking at, you know, other measures to help prevent with future fires. And they're seeing it as an opportunity to do some of the transit oriented development they've wanted to do for a long time. So is there anything that we can do to, you know, put a a toolkit or resources in front of cities so that they're able to quickly respond post-disaster when it is a priority and rebuild in a way that's more resilient. Yeah, I think the you know the the threshold question at the at the front is many of the areas that we've built in built there you have a question of whether we want to rebuild in there because of the the uh, continued uh, extreme weather that we may have the the prevalence of fires we don't want to you know we don't want to become south carolina where every three years you're rebuilding a house because a hurricane comes and they get that that money that comes from the government to get in so at the with the threshold question may asked of this is a once in a thousand year fire that's going to come in that's a that's an e- that's an easy question but some of the the encroachment that we have with the construction out into areas where you would think my god there should why, who who thought this was a good idea to put a house up on that cliff and it it falls down i think that the the carrot has to be out there i mean i'm you know i'm going to be an advocate for funding on adaptation minded projects as you said, that that we're going to build smarter. We're going to, you know, a lot of our local development has been haphazard. 
and it and people are used to it they're they're familiar with it but it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that we expect on transit oriented a higher density something that's more livable that 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 you know we built these cul-de-sacs and and it it comes into it's great when you have 500 kids in there but if you got three seniors that are there it becomes a prison so i'd like to think that we we have the will and the know-how to do that at the state level Great. You, you've mentioned funding from cap and trade a couple of times. And so I, I want to dive into that a little bit. Specifically, I think we've learned um, from our progress on climate change mitigation that we've got a few levers that we've been successful at utilizing. So that's funding. We've gotten a tremendous amount, billions of dollars invested from cap and trade into climate mitigation programs. We have legislation and regulation, California's Global Warming Solutions Act, and a number of other bills. We've had lawsuits from both the attorney general and environmental groups that have pushed the urgency on this issue. And we've had some pretty diverse stakeholder groups coming together to encourage momentum on on climate change mitigation. So how are we translating those lessons to adaptation and where would you say we're at in terms of kind of the the climate mitigation arc applied to adaptation work? The Great Recession had a lot to do with our reducing pollution and achieving our goals. I you know, we've met our met our targets on AB 32, um but I still think we have to remain vigilant. I think your listeners know that I had a more aggressive idea of what a cap and trade program should look uh, look like. And I was returning a dividend, a climate dividend to people and investing in adaptation in a big way. So once we get over our, our rewarding uh, polluting industries and giving them free allowances and instead restrict them. But with that said, I think that, you know, the governor has given us a signal that assuming the park and water bond passes in June, then he would like to with the first tier of money going out, spent 123 million on climate adaptation. Now, what that looks like in the park and water arena, I don't know, but that's my oversight of my uh, of my budget sub two committee. So, I I would like to see that greenhouse gas reduction fund used in the adaptation arena. I mean, you go back to the Paris Climate Agreement. 27% of the money that they were talking about goes into adaptation. They're, we're not trying to convince people. Now, AB 32 said 100% had to go into mitigation. So as we move into the next phase of SB 32 and, and the, uh, the, the next decade of, of cap and trade, there's a lot of pressure by members that it's a carnival. Everybody wants to spend every money on every project that they have. And some of that was part of the what was ne- necessary politically, but in long term, I think those investments in in assisting at the regional level of what we can do, the projects that we that everybody agrees on that have to be done, and some of the other projects that are tougher. You know, in the Bay Area, what do we do with you know Highway uh, Thirty Seven? I mean, there's a lot of planners, and the work that's going on with resiliency by design is saying, you know, that 
should be a bridge, you know, probably and let the and when we have sea level rising, give the the bay the ability to breathe and move and and move that water in that largely undeveloped area. Now, some people in Sonoma may not like that or the developers, but but you look at the bay and you say, okay, South Bay, we've got our refuge and we've got a lot of wetlands that we're trying to restore. North Bay has some stuff, but we all work collectively on a and adapting to the type of weather that we're going to have. So you've had some big legislative wins, as you've alluded to, on adaptation. And certainly you've been a leader on the mitigation side as well. In 2015, you authored SB 246, which established the Integrated Climate Adaptation and Resiliency Program, in addition to to doing some other things in the space as well. How has that been going in your mind? What progress has been made through this center and what's next? Well, the you know the technical advisory council. So if if we jump back to the advanced research project agency, the the ARPA E, they they require in good scientific uh, analysis, they want to have an advisory council. So they've been they've been meeting the last year, and they're providing some of uh, continued dialogue and collaboration at the state and local level because the state's doing many things with the cat on climate adaptation. They just haven't shared it. Um, now, the Office of Planning and Research has finished their initial database, so they provide that access for the, you know, the, the resources and the advanced climate adaptation and resiliency efforts that the state has. And they've got this, they're working on the Ocean Protections Council, with the Ocean Protection Council and UC Berkeley uh, to build this back end to the database. So the usability and the functions of all that. And this new clearinghouse is set up so it's an interactive tool that that local folks can find you know look up the, the story map of the region of what's going on and the information on financing as little as it is so far what's available and then the link so my idea is that you know as we it, we talked about we need to come in with some designated funding for these projects that we want to build out i mean we got as I, I think I mentioned the resiliency uh, by design. You know, these are these are the the thinkers in this this area that are coming up with ideas, and we don't have the you know the OPR or the science this climate technical advisory council going through the last batch of award winners and saying, hey, we should the state should really fund this. We should go in and 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 build out this this demonstration or this idea to. You know, show the region how we're going to work together. I mean, I'm going to continue to use the authority that I have in the budget sub two to really push that, that, you know, we hit all the buttons on climate adaptation. It becomes in the forefront of our expenditure plan. I have no idea. You know, we'll work through what the governor's idea is for spending on cap and trade, but, you know, I want to. I want to all include all of the above so that we're giving funds to to regions and to cities to work on vectors, to work on extreme heat, to work on extreme weather, to work on planning, to work on sea level rise, and to work on fires and, and floods. Fantastic. Well, definitely supportive of that. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, I mean, we'll hear more from the governor and his state of the state this week about his budget priorities. Do you get the sense that your colleagues in the legislature are more open to this because of the disasters and because of 
the lack of leadership at the federal level? Is is this an important window of time that we can get something important here done? Oh, yes. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's two things that are going on is one, you know, the governor's initial budget uh, forecast that cap and trade, at least the 40 percent that's that's included is going to be one point three billion dollars. My estimate is that's probably about 400 million, 500 million short because the auctions are going to bring in more, uh, more receipts. So we'll work on that portion of what the, what the size of the pie is going to be, so to speak. So we want to put more money into adaptation. I think the discussion that we're going to have is uh, these climate issues is that this is Jerry Brown's last budget. Uh, what what is he what has he done? And yes, there's nothing happening at the federal level. What are, are going to be our long-term projections? Because again, we want to. It's all of the above. We have to look at it. I mean, when we're at Bonn for COP23, you know, it was California, but it was also Washington. It was Oregon, Massachusetts, Michigan was there. There's all, and the private sector was all there saying we're going to we're going to lead the way, and they were very uh, receptive. Of you know the conversations that I'm having on adaptation, as I did in Paris in in 2015, the you know that the developed world is really you know going through a process where they're they're developing their stock take, and you know California, as I've mentioned to Mary Nichols at the at the Air Resource Board, we need to have transferable, portable programs that are easy that don't take a you know 1500 you know, scientists to figure out, but something on the, the, the world stage that they can say, here's the adaptation activity that California is taking. Here's the planning resources that they have here. Take this off the shelf and bring it back to, to your place. So um, your town. So, you know, we got to be vigilant. We got our goals for reducing greenhouse gases. And then we weave in this adaptation as we know that these, these changes are going to uh, occur. And we have that's, I think what has happened with the fires is that we have to do less convincing to people to say that the fire seasons are going to be longer and the devastation is going to be greater and, and there's going to be, everything's going to be extreme. I think that message has been delivered, but the top, the clock is still ticking and to not, to keep our emphasis on reducing our greenhouse gases is important, but we got to weave in the resiliency discussion. Absolutely. Well, Senator Warkowski, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your busy schedule to join us. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.